The Halfling's Gem, Book 2, Allies The world is full of ruffians. The world is full of people of good character. Both of these statements are true, I believe, because within most of the people I have known lies the beginning points of both seemingly disparate paths. Some people are too timid to ever be ruffians, of course, and others too kind-hearted, and similarly, some folk are too hard-tempered to ever let their good qualities show. But the emotional makeup of most people lies somewhere in the middle, a shade of gray that can be easily darkened or lightened by simple interaction. Race can certainly alter that shade. How well I have seen that since my road led me to the surface. An elf might noticeably flinch at the approach of a dwarf, while dwarf might do likewise or even spit upon the ground if the situation is reversed. Those initial impressions are sometimes difficult to overcome, and sometimes become lasting. But beyond race and appearance and other things that we cannot control, I've learned that there are definite decisions that I can make concerning which reaction I will edge someone else toward. The key to it all, I believe, is respect. When I was in Luskin with Wolfgar, we crossed through a tavern full of ruffians, men who used their fists and weapons on an almost daily basis. Yet another friend of mine, Captain Dordermont of the Sea Sprite, often frequents such taverns and rarely, very rarely, ever gets into so much as a verbal argument. Why is this? Why would a man such as Dordermont, obviously, as is shown by his dress and manner, a man of some wealth and a man of respectable society as well, not find himself immersed in brawls as regularly as the others. He often goes in alone and stands quietly at the bar, but though he hardly says a word, he surely stands out among the more common patrons. Is it fear that holds the ruffians from the man? Are they afraid that if they tangle with Dordemont they will find retribution at the hand of his crew? Or has Dordemont simply brought with him such a reputation for ferocity as to scare off any potential challengers? Neither, I say. Certainly, the captain of the sea sprite must be a fine warrior. But that is no deterrent to the thugs of the taverns, indeed. The grazed fighting reputation only invites challenges among those folk. And though Dordemont's crew is formidable by all accounts, more powerful and connected men have been found dead in the gutters of Luskin. No, what keeps Captain Dordemont safe is his ability to show respect for anyone he meets. He is a man of charm who holds well his personal pride. He grants respect at the outset of a meeting and continues that respect until the person forfeits it. This is very different than the way most people view the world. Most people insist that respect has to be earned, and with many, I've come to observe, earning it is no easy task. Many, and I include Bruner and Wolfgar in this group, demand that anyone desiring their friendship first earn their respect, and I can understand their point of view and once believed that I held one similar. On my journey south on the sea sprite, Captain Dordemont taught me better, made me realize, without even uttering a word on the subject, that demanding of another that he earns your respect is, in itself, an act of arrogance, a way of self-elevation, implying by its very nature that your respect is worth earning. Dordemont takes the opposite approach, one of acceptance and one lacking initial judgment. This may seem a subtle alternative, but it most certainly is not. Would that the man be anointed a king, I say, for he has learned the secret of peace. When Captain Dordemont, dressed in his finery, enters a tavern of common peasant thugs, 
most within the place and society at large would view him as superior. And yet, in his interactions with these people, there is no air of superiority about the man at all. In his eyes and in his heart, he is among peers, among other intelligent creatures whose paths have led them to a different, and not better or worse, place than his own. And when Dordemont grants respect to men who would think nothing of cutting his heart out, he disarms them. He takes away whatever reason they might have found to fight with him. There is much more to it than that. Captain Dordemont is able to do this because he can honestly attempt to see the world through the eyes of another. He is a man of empathy, a man who revels in the differences of people rather than fearing those differences. How rich is his life! How full of wonder and how wide of experience! Captain Dordemont taught these things to me by example. Respect is one of the most basic needs of reasoning creatures, particularly among men. An insult is just that because it is an assault upon respect, upon esteem, and upon that most dangerous of qualities, pride. So when I meet people now, they do not have to earn my respect. I grant it, willingly and happily, expecting that in doing so, I will come to learn even more about this beautiful world around me, that my experiences will widen. Certainly, some people will see this as weakness or cowardice, will misconstrue my intentions as sublimation rather than an acceptance of equal worth. But it is not fear that guides my actions. I have seen far too much of battle to fear it any longer. It is hope. The hope that I will find another Bruner or another Caterbury, for I have come to know that I can never have too many friends. So I offer you respect, and it will take much for you to lose it. But if you do... If you choose to see it as weakness and seize upon your perceived advantage, well, perhaps I'll then let you talk with Gwenhaver. Drizzt Duarden. Chapter 7. Stirrings The first thing he noticed was the absence of the wind. He had laid long, hour after hour, on his perch at the top of the chimney, and through it all, even in his semi-conscious state, there had been the unceasing presence of the wind. It had taken his mind back to Icewind Dale, his home for nearly two centuries. But Brunner had felt no comfort in the gale's forlorn moan, a continual reminder of his predicament, and the last sound he thought he would ever hear. But it was no more. Only the crackle of a nearby fire broke the quiet stillness. Brunner lifted a heavy eyelid and stared absently into the flames, trying to discern his condition and his whereabouts. He was warm and comfortable, with a heavy quilt pulled up tightly around his shoulders. And he was indoors. The flames burned in a hearth, not in the open pit of a campfire. Brunner's eye drifted to the side of the hearth and focused on a neatly stacked pile of equipment. His equipment. The one-horned helm, Driz scimitar, the mithril armor, and his new battle-axe and shining shield. And he was stretched out under the quilt, wearing only a silken nightshirt. Suddenly feeling very vulnerable, Brunner pulled himself up to his elbows. A wave of blackness rolled over him and sent his thoughts reeling in nauseous circles. He dropped heavily back to his back. His vision returned for just a moment, long enough to register the form of a tall and beautiful woman kneeling over him. Her long hair gleaming silver in the firelight brushed across his face. "'Spider's poison,' she said softly would have killed anything but a dwarf. Then there was only the blackness. Brunner awoke again a few hours later, stronger and more alert. Trying not to stir and bring any attention, 
He half opened one eye and surveyed the area, glancing at the pile first. Satisfied that all of his equipment was still there, he slowly turned his head over. He was in a small chamber, apparently a one-room structure, for the only door seemed to lead outside. The woman he had seen earlier, though Brunner wasn't really sure until now if the image had been a dream, stood beside the door, staring out the room's single window to the night sky beyond. Her hair was indeed silver. Brunner could see that its hue was no trick of the firelight. But not silver with the graying of age, this lustrous mane glowed with vibrant life. "'Your pardon, fair lady,' the dwarf croaked, his voice cracking on every syllable. The woman twirled and looked at him curiously. "'Might I be getting a bit of food?' asked Brunner, never one to mix up his priorities. The woman floated across the room and helped Brunner up into a sitting position. Again, a wave of blackness swirled over the dwarf, but he managed to shrug it away. "'Only a dwarf,' the woman muttered, astonished that Brunner had come through this ordeal. Brunner cocked his head up at her. "'I know you, lady, though I cannot find your name in me thoughts.' "'It is not important,' the woman replied. "'You have come through much, Brunner Battlehammer.' Brunner cocked his head further and leaned away at the mention of his name. But the woman steadied him and continued, "'I attended to your wounds as best I could, though I feared that I'd come upon you too late to mend the hurts of the spider's poison.' Brunner looked down at his bandaged forearm, reliving those terrible moments when he had first encountered the giant spider. "'How long?' "'How long you lay atop the broken grate, I do not know,' the woman answered. "'But here you have rested for three days and more, too long for your stomach's liking. I will prepare some food.' She started to rise, but Brunner caught her arm. "'Where is this place?' The lady's smile eased his grip. "'In a clearing not far from the grate, I fear to move you.' Brunner didn't quite yet understand. "'You're home?' "'Oh, no,' the woman laughed, standing. "'A creation, and only temporary. It will be gone with the dawn's light if you feel able to travel.' The tie to magic flickered recognition. "'You're the Lady of Silvery Moon,' Brunner spouted suddenly. "'Clear Moon Illustrial,' the woman said with a polite bow. "'My greetings,' "'Noble king.' "'King?' Brunner echoed in disgust. "'Sure and me holes are gone to that scum.' "'We shall see,' said Illustrial. But Brunner missed the words altogether. His thoughts were not on Nithro Hall, but on Drizzt and Wolfgar and Regis, and especially on Canterbury, the joy of his life. "'Me friends,' he begged to the woman. "'Do you know of me friends?' "'Rest easy.' Illustrial answered. They escaped the halls, each of them. Even the drow? Illustrial nodded. Drizzt Duarden was not destined to die in the home of his dearest friend. Illustrial's familiarity with Drizzt triggered another memory in the dwarf. You met him before, he said. On our road to Mithril Hall, you pointed the way for us, and that is how you knew me name. And knew where to search for you, Illustrial added. Your friends think you dead to their ultimate grief. 
but I am a wizard of some talent, and can speak to worlds that oft bring surprising revelations. When the spectre of Morkai, an old associate who passed from this world a few years ago, imparted to me an image of a fallen dwarf, half out of a hole on the side of a mountain, I knew the truth of the fate of Brunner Battlehammer. I only hoped that I would not be too late. Bah! Fit as ever! Brunner huffed, thumping a fist into his chest. As he shifted his weight, a stinging pain in his seat made him wince. A crossbow quarrel, Illustrial explained. Brunner thought for a moment. He had no recollection of being hit, though the memory of his flight from the Undercity was perfectly clear. He shrugged and attributed it to the blindness of his battle lust. So, one of the gray scum got me, he started to say, but then he blushed and turned his eyes away from the thought of this woman plucking the quarrel from his backside. Illustria was kind enough to change the subject. Dine and then rest, she instructed. Your friends are safe, for the present. We're... Illustrial cut him off with an outstretched palm. My knowledge in this matter is not sufficient, she explained. You shall find your answers soon enough. In the morning, I will take you to Longsaddle and Caterbury. She can tell you more than I. Brunner wished that he could go right now to the human girl he'd plucked from the ruins of a goblin raid and reared as his daughter, that he could crush her against him in his arms and tell her that everything was all right. But he reminded himself that he had never truly expected to see Caterbury again, and he could suffer through one more night. Any fears he had of anxious restlessness were washed away in the serenity of exhausted sleep only minutes after he'd finished the meal. Illustrial watched over him until contented snores resounded throughout the magical shelter. Satisfied that only a healthy sleeper could roar so loudly, the Lady of Silvery Moon leaned back against the wall and closed her eyes. It had been a long three days. Brunner watched in amazement as the structure faded around him with the first light of dawn, as if the dark of night had somehow lent the place the tangible material for its construction. He turned to say something to Illustrial, but saw her in the midst of casting a spell, facing the pinkening sky and reaching out as though trying to grab the rays of sunlight. She clenched her hands and brought them to her mouth, whispering the enchantment into them. Then she flung the captured light out before her, crying out the final words of the Dwomer, he quan the flame. A glowing ball of red struck the stone and burst into a shower of fire, forming almost instantly into a flaming chariot and two horses. Their image danced with the fire that gave them shape, but they did not burn the ground. Gather your things, the lady instructed Brunner. It is time we leave. Brunner stood motionless a moment longer. He'd never come to appreciate magic, only the magic that strengthened weapons and armor but neither did he deny its usefulness. He collected his equipment, not bothering to don armor or shield, and joined Illustrial behind the chariot. He followed her onto it, somewhat reluctantly, but it did not burn and it felt as tangible as wood. Illustrial took a fiery rein in her slender hand and called to the team. A single bound lifted them into the morning sky, and they shot away, west around the bulk of the mountain and then south. The stunned dwarf dropped his equipment to his feet, his chin to his chest, and clutched the side of the chariot. Mountains rolled out below him, 
and he noted the ruins of Settlestone, the ancient dwarven city now far below, and only a second later, far behind. The chariot roared over the open grassland and skimmed westward along the northern edge of the Trollmoors. Brunor had relaxed enough to spit a curse as they soared over the town of Nesmi, remembering the less-than-hospitable treatment he and his friends had received at the hands of the patrol from the place. They passed over the Deserin River network, a shining snake writhing through the fields, and Brunor saw a large encampment of barbarians far to the north. Illustrial swung the fiery chariot south again, and only a few minutes later, the famed ivory mansion of Harple Hill, Longsaddle, came into view. A crowd of curious wizards gathered atop the hill to watch the chariots approach, cheering somberly, trying to maintain a distinguished air, as they always did when Lady Illustrial graced them with her presence. One face in the crowd blanched to white when the red-bearded, pointed nose and one-horned helm of Brunner Battlehammer came into view. But you... Oh, uh, dead, fell, stammered Harkle Harple, as Brunner jumped from the back of the chariot. Nice to see yourself, too, Brunner replied, clad only in his nightshirt and helm. He scooped his equipment from the chariot and dropped the pile at Harkle's feet. Where's me girl? Uh, yes, yes, uh, the, the girl, Canterbury. Oh, where? Oh, there, he rambled, the fingers of one hand nervously bouncing on his lower lip. "'Do come. Yes, do!' He grabbed Brunner's hand and whisked the dwarf off to the ivy mansion. They intercepted Caterbury, barely out of bed and wearing a fluffy robe, shuffling down a long hall. The young woman's eyes popped wide when she spotted Brunner rushing at her, and she dropped the towel she was holding, her arms falling limply to her side. Brunner buried his face into her, hugging her around the waist so tightly that he forced the air from her lungs. As soon as she recovered from her shock... She returned the hug tenfold. Me prayers, she stammered, her voice quaking with sobs. By the gods, I thought you did. Brunner didn't answer, trying to hold himself steady. His tears were soaking the front of Caterbury's robe, and he felt the eyes of a crowd of harples behind him. Embarrassed, he pushed open a door to his side, surprising a half-clad harple who stood naked to the waist. Excuse, the wizard began. But Brunner grabbed his shoulder and pulled him out into the hall, at the same time leading Caterbury into the room. The door slammed in the wizard's face as he turned back to his chamber. He looked helplessly to his gathered kin, but their wide smiles and erupting laughter told him that they would be of no assistance. With a shrug, the wizard moved on about his morning business as though nothing unusual had happened. It was the first time Caterbury had ever seen the stoic dwarf truly cry. Brunner didn't care and couldn't have done a thing to prevent the scene anyway. "'Me prayers, too,' he whispered to his beloved daughter, the human child he'd taken in as his own more than a decade and a half before. "'If we had known,' Caterbury began, but Brunner put a gentle finger to her lips to silence her. It was not important. Brunner knew that Caterbury and the others would never have left him if they had suspected that he might be alive. "'Surin, I know not how I lived.' the dwarf replied. None of the fire found me skin. He shuddered at the memories of his weeks alone in the mines of the Mithril Hall. No more talk of the place, he begged. Behind me it is. Behind me to stay. Caterbury, knowing of the approach of armies to reclaim the dwarven homeland, started to shake her head, but Brunner didn't catch the motion. Me friends? he asked the young woman. Draw eyes I saw as I fell. 
Drizzt lives, Caterbury answered, as does the assassin that chased Regis. He came up to the ledge just as you fell and carried the little one away. Rumblebelly? Bruner gasped. Aye, and the drow's cat as well. Not dead. Nay, not to me guess, Caterbury was quick to respond. Not yet. Dresden Wolfgar had chased the fiend to the south, knowing his goal to be Calimport. A long run, Bruner muttered. He looked to Caterbury, confused. But I'd have thought you'd be with them. I have me own course, Caterbury replied, her face suddenly stern. A debt for repaying. Bruner understood at once. Mithril Hall? He choked out. You figure to return avenging meself? Caterbury nodded, unblinking. You're a bats, girl, Bruner said. And the drow would let you go alone? Alone? Caterbury echoed. It was time for the rightful king to know. Nay, nor would I so foolishly end me life. A hundred kin make their way from the north and west, she explained. And a fair number of Wolfgar's folk beside them. Not enough, Bruner replied. An army of Durgar scum holds the horse. And eight thousand more from Citadel Adbar to the north and east, Caterbury continued grimly, not slowing a beat. King Harbram of the Dwarves of Adbar says he'll see the halls free again. Even the Harples have promised their aid. Bruner drew a mental image of the approaching armies, wizards, barbarians, and a rolling wall of dwarves, and with Caterbury at their lead. A thin smile cut the frown from his face. He looked upon his daughter with even more than the considerable respect he'd always shown her, his eyes wet with tears once more. They wouldn't beat me, Caterbury growled. I meant to see your face carved in the Hall of Kings, and meant to put your name in its proper place of glory. Bruner grabbed her close and squeezed with all his strength. Of all the mantles and laurels he'd found in the years gone by, or might find in the years ahead, none fit as well, or blessed him as much, as father. Bruner stood solemnly on the southern slope of Harple Hill that evening, watching the last colors fade out of the western sky and the emptiness of the rolling plain to the south. His thoughts were on his friends, particularly Regis, Rumplebelly the bothersome halfling that had undeniably found a soft corner in the dwarf's stone heart. Drizzt would be okay. Drizzt was always okay. And with mighty Wolfgar walking beside him, it would take an army to bring them down. But Regis. Bruner never had doubted that the halfling's carefree manner of living, stepping on toes with a half-apologetic and half-amused shrug, would eventually get him in mud too deep for his little legs to carry him through. Rumblebelly had been a fool to steal the guildmaster's ruby pendant, but just desserts did nothing to dispel the dwarf's pity at his halfling friend's dilemma, nor Bruner's anger at his own inability to help. By his station, his place was here, and he would lead the gathering armies to victory and glory, crushing the Dorgar and bringing a level of prosperity back to Mithril Hall. His new kingdom would be the envy of the North, with crafted items that rivaled the works of the ancient days flowing out into the trade routes all across the realms. It had been his dream 
the goal of his life since that terrible day nearly two centuries before, when clan Battlehammer had been nearly wiped out and those few who had survived, mostly children, had been chased out of their homeland to the meager mines of Icewind Dale. Bruner's lifelong dream was to return, but how hollow it seemed to him now with his friends caught in a desperate chase across the Southland. The last light left the sky, and the stars blinked to life. Nighttime, Bruner thought with a bit of comfort. The time of the drow. The first hints of his smile dissipated, though, as soon as they began, as Bruner suddenly came to view the deepening gloom in a different perspective. Nighttime, he whispered aloud. The time of the assassin. <laughs>